Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, 30-odd years ago, a teenaged Australian named Arna Rubinstein embraced some risky behavior. Later on, the young man who became Dr. Arna Rubinstein worked in emergency rooms where he saw more than enough of what happens when teenagers take risks. Through an organization he founded, The Making of Men, Dr. Rubenstein is now focused on helping young people become adults in safe and healthy ways. If you are looking for ways to help your child or a child in your life navigate the challenges they face, his insights and reflections into healthy rites of passage are worth a long listen. So when we run a program, if I'm running a program for fathers and sons, at the end of the program, I'll get all the, I'll get each of the boys will come up one at a time, sit on a special chair in front of everyone, and then his father will get up in front of everyone and tell his son what he loves about him, what he's proud of, what gifts he sees that he has. And it changes his life. It absolutely changes his life. And then another man will get up, and then one of the other leaders will get up and tell this young man what they see in him. And same with the girls, the mothers, the women, will get up and tell each of the girls, each of the young women, what they see in them, the beauty, the gifts, the talents, and the genius. It changes their lives. I want every kid in the world to have that opportunity to be honoured and recognised by their elders and told exactly who you are. It's perfect, beautiful, wonderful. We see you, we recognise you, we love you. Dr. Arna Rubenstein spoke at Seattle University's Pigott Auditorium on April 19th. The event was hosted by the Vashon Island-based organization, Journeyman. Founders Nikki Wilkes and Alex Craighead introduced the talk. My name is Nikki Wilkes. And my name is Alex Craighead. And together, we've founded Journeyman, uh, a local nonprofit engaging in youth rites of passage and mentorship programs for boys in Puget Sound. Alex and I were born in, uh, or were raised on Vashon Island. And I like to think of Vashon as uh, a wonderful garden of a place to be a child. We have abundant elements of nature. We had parents who were willing to show up for us and who really cared about our upbringing. And we had a very supportive community. Um, in some ways, it seemed like we had all the ingredients for success and for having a healthy childhood. Um, as we got older, I noticed that things started to shift. Being a teen on, in our small community presented its own unique challenges. With limited engaging activities, a lack of healthy role models, and few opportunities for healthy and appropriate risks, we ultimately created our own. Fighting, binge drinking until we blacked out, and driving dangerously fast, eventually resulting in Nikki and I crashing our cars. We were a threat to ourselves and our community. But from the outside looking in, you probably wouldn't have been able to tell. We were successful in school, getting good grades. We had lots of friends. And we were successful in sports, eventually winning a state championship. We carried this momentum forward as friends and decided to leave our home together, venturing off to college to pursue our dream of playing college lacrosse. And that next stage of our journey presented even more challenges. Moving to any new community presents a new set of challenges. Lacking our own sense of identity, we struggled to fit the mold of those around us. As lacrosse players at a private college on the East Coast, that meant undue privilege and entitlement, surrounded by misogyny 
and toxic masculinity. We felt lost, but we knew that we needed to leave in order to find our place in the world. The next stage in my journey brought me to Southern California. Changing my major to business and economics, I began to see how those same wounds that we were dealing with on a personal level could play out in the larger scale. As I was approaching the completion of my master's program, I met a young woman and we became pregnant. Facing the reality of becoming a father was both the most terrifying and the most empowering moment of my life. Though I had been showing up for young people as a mentor, the thought of having a young person looking up to me for everything was scary to say the least. Right around this time, I recommitted myself professionally to working with youth. I started my first job as a college admission counselor, guiding that transition from high school to college, and I started showing up on the lacrosse field again as a coach, meeting the youth where I knew that they were in a way that felt appropriate for me. It was also right around this time that I began drafting the original framework for our organization, staying up late at night, writing, creating the business plan, reaching out, talking to people, and eventually I sent the email to Alex. Do you remember how you responded? I said, let's do this. Yeah, and I responded with, I'm not ready. And it wasn't the time. I was teaching in Germany, having recently graduated from right here at Seattle University with my master's in teaching, and Nikki was on the other side of the world, but a seed was planted. Moving back to the United States, I actually landed the most meaningful job that I've had in my entire life. Teaching at Gateway High School in San Francisco, where 90% of our students were involved in gang activity, I came to the realization that despite our differences, we shared many of the same struggles. Traveling home that same year for the holidays, it became even more clear. A childhood friend of ours took his life. And we continued to hear stories of more and more people that were struggling to find their way in the world. In hopes of trying to bring some light to this dark time in our community, we decided to offer free hugs and hot chocolate at the main intersection in our town on New Year's Day. And we knew that that was not enough. That next summer, sitting on a pile of logs that would later be used to build my first home, Alex and I had another conversation. Do you remember how you asked? I said, are you ready? Because now's the time. Yeah, and this time I was. So we shook hands, we made a commitment. And since that day, we've been doing everything in our power to bring this work to our people. Since incorporating last year, we've done everything we can to call in our support, to bring these programs to the community of Vashon and eventually reach out to the boys in Puget Sound to create a network of mentors and to create a space for young men to discover who they really are, to find the support that they need to show up and make a graceful transition into adulthood. So without further ado, we'd like to go ahead and welcome our keynote speaker for the evening, best-selling author of The Making of Men, and our guest tonight, Dr. Arna Rubenstein. Okay, well, g'day everybody. My name's Anna, and um, thank you for coming along tonight. And uh, that's as beautiful a uh, welcome as I've ever been given to a talk that I've been at. 
and, and Nikki and Alex, thank you, and everybody for coming along. Um, I started in Sydney 48 hours ago. Yesterday, I was in Eugene. Um, it was amazing. I had summer and winter and spring and fall all in a day. <laughs> this morning, I got up early, flew here to Seattle, my first time in Seattle, which is great. And uh, here we are at Seattle University. So I'm very interested in this idea of thriving teenagers. And, and that story is so poignant because I see that so often. And what I want, I want teenagers, boys and girls, to be motivated about life, to have a vision, to have good friends, to be going somewhere, to be excited, all of that stuff. And when I was getting ready for this talk and getting some slides together, I found a slide of myself when I was a teenager. And I don't think much has changed, <laughs> but maybe it has, actually. And I remember that time. Similar sort of thing. You know, I was 17, I was at a good school, had a good family, you know, no big problems. But I had two lives. I had the life that they knew about and I had the life that they didn't know about. And in the life that they didn't know about, I kind of struggled. And I was a bit flat, maybe even depressed. And I was looking for trouble. I was looking for whatever trouble I could find. And it's only through luck that I didn't get in way bigger trouble than I could have. And I remember when I got my license and I used to slide my car around the corners and drive as fast as I could. And um, if I could get alcohol, drink, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and it was, a, it was a hard time. And, and the big thing for me, I remember, is I didn't really have anybody to talk to. And I certainly didn't have role models. And, and, and I certainly, you know, I didn't know, am I a boy or am I a man? I was supposed to act like a man, but I was being treated like a boy. And there was a lot, a lot of confusion. Anyway, at quite a young age, um, I became a father. And these are my two boys, Jarrah and Jaden, when they were four and six years old, at that beautiful age where when you squeeze them, their ribs kind of move. <laughs> they got give. And I was Superman. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and so this is actually Jaden's fourth birthday and Jarrah's six. Who's got kids in here, by the way? Great. Who's got teenagers? All right. Anybody got kids under 10? Great. A lot of people with young kids. Anybody got kids under two? Anybody pregnant? Hey, fellas at the front. I love that. Thank you very much. So I also had a career as a doctor. And I had a family practice for a while, but I worked in emergency medicine mainly. And I spent 25 years working as an emergency medicine doctor, um, initially full-time, uh, and then for about the last 10 years, very part-time, and I, and I finally stopped about a year ago. And this is quite an interesting photo, because lying on the stretcher is a 15-year-old boy. And he thought it would be fun with his mates to steal his dad's car and go for a drive. Actually, ever since I've had this slide, 
I, I ask this question to all the audiences. Put up your hand if when you were a teenager, you stole your mum or your dad's car and went out for a joyride. Wow. That's impressive. Stand up so we can actually see who you are. Stand up. Great. I love it. Well-dressed, respectable looking. All stole your dad's cars or mum's cars and went for a drive. Okay, so this kid, he thought it'd be fun to do that. That bit worked okay. And then he said to one of his mates, you drive, I'm going to surf on the roof. Now he's in hospital with a badly broken leg, in emergency. But I would actually consider him to be one of the lucky ones because he made it to the hospital and he will eventually go home from the hospital. And in my 25 years working in emergency, I know they're not all that lucky. Um, and I, the reason why I have stopped working as a doctor in the medical system is because I now work full-time with boys and men. Uh, and I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one mentoring. This is young Will, who I've known since he was about six years old. He's now 13. And one of the things I've discovered is a great way to keep teenage boys happy is to give them a knife. And, and the bigger the knife, the better. And this is Jed, who I've known since he was a young boy as well. And the other great thing for boys is to give them lots of food. Um, I also run programs. We run camps, and we, we ran our first camp for boys and men uh, in 1994. Um, and since then, uh, I've been involved in setting up and creating camps, and we have camps that run all over Australia, and we've also run our camps in about 10 countries around the world, and we've had over 30,000 people uh, involved in what we're doing. So I'm really excited to be here in Seattle, and, and really excited that um, this weekend at Vashon, on Friday, we're going to run a, a, a Global Rights of Passage Leadership Training Day, and on the weekend, we're going to run a camp for boys and, and their fathers. Well, and actually, we're going to have a grandfather along as well, which is great. We love grandfathers. By the way, there's a saying that grandparents and grandchildren have a special bond because they have a common enemy. <laughs> anyway, it's just a saying. Um, I also have been involved a lot in helping to set up programs for girls, and, I, and I'm equally as passionate about the work happening for girls. I don't do it personally. I work with boys and men, but I really want to see this work happening for girls. And I also need to say, really early on, I have not been the perfect father. I'm a million miles off being the perfect man. Um, do we have any perfect fathers or mothers or men or women in the room, by the way? Maybe? Okay, because I'm looking for someone. I haven't found anyone yet. Um, but for me, you know, it's not actually about being perfect. It's about the journey. A and my hope is that as a result of tonight, we can all take away at least one thing that we can do with our children, our partners, our friends, something, our community, uh, that we all take away at least one thing. So that's what I'm aiming for. Okay, but I'm mainly going to talk about children because the topic tonight is parenting technology and modern rites of passage. And I reckon that when our children are born, they're like little astronauts, and our role is to build them a rocket so that one day they can take off on their own journey and we try and build them the best rocket we can 
And the idea is that when they do take off, hopefully they've got some idea how to steer the rocket. They've got maybe some idea where they're going. They keep some amount of um, communication going with ground control, and they're away. And I'd like to ask a question. So I'm very interested. Most of my work is in Australia. And I'm always interested when I go to another country to see what's, you know, what's similar and what's different in the places we go. So for those of us who have children, and if you imagine your children at, say, 25 years of age, what, what would we consider you know, success as a parent? What would we want if we could use one or two words to describe our children at, say, 20, 25 years of age, how would we like them to be? Anybody? Put your hand up. Yeah. Financially independent. Financially independent. Okay. Does that mean not living with you? Okay. Great. Christian. Happy. Happy. Fabulous. Who else? Joyful. Beautiful. Sir. Ma'am, sorry. Like Nikki. Like Nikki. Right. Okay. Passionate. Passionate. Yeah. Self-aware. Self-aware. Discerning. Great. Anyone else? Yeah. Enjoy love and work. Enjoy love and work. All right. So, you know, very similar to what we hear in Australia. And nothing that you've said sounds impossible. Um, and I think we should be able to, I think, you know, at a, at a minimum, we should be hoping that our children can do that. We also know that rockets don't always do so well. And, and sometimes they explode. And I remember when my children were young, and they're in their 20s now, I remember thinking, you know, what are my kids going to be like when they're teenagers? Am I going to have kids who are doing really well? Am I going to have kids who still want to talk to me, want to spend time with me, um, who've got good friends? Or, or are my kids going to be a disaster? Uh, am I going to have kids who are on drugs? Am I going to have kids who've got mental health issues? Uh, am I going to have kids who I don't even know where they are? Anything. And is it just a matter of luck? Do I have to just hope they turn out okay? Or are there things I can be doing about it? And without any doubt, I believe it's not just a matter of luck. There's an enormous amount we can do. And that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. But I also, today, tonight, where I am, it's actually Thursday lunchtime, or where I usually am. And here, what are we? We're Wednesday evening. Okay. Um, so, Seattle. 2017, bunch of parents. What do we worry about when your children are teenagers, when they're in their 20s? What is it that we worry about here in Seattle? Anybody? Safety. safety. Any particular sort of safety? Just safety. Yeah. Great. Well, not great. Yes. Who else? Yeah. The media. The media. As in the influence of the media? Oh, okay, too many movies, too much screen time, they get lost in the whole technology thing. Yeah, huge. Okay, who else? Yeah. Addictions. Yeah. And by the way, as far as drugs and addictions go, what I say is it's not a matter of keeping our kids away from drugs and addictions. That shouldn't be our aim because we actually can't do it. Drugs are everywhere. What we really need to be thinking about is when drugs get offered to our children, why are some going to say yes and some going to say no? Because they will get offered. But it's about what they choose to do and how can we influence that. 
All right, anybody else? Yeah. Lack of joy. Yeah. Okay. And last one? Lack of community. All things that we hear in Australia. In Australia, we also have a big issue with um, car accidents. We put a cross up on the road when someone gets killed. And in the last three years, there have been five crosses put up in the road, on the road near the town where I live, all under 25, all alcohol or drug related, all unnecessary. That's a big issue in Australia. Uh, mental health is a huge issue in Australia. As teenagers, approximately one in three children are considered in any year to have a mental health issue. How can that be? I find that's completely staggering. So I'm, I'm very interested in, you know, why is it that children act out, children of any age? And maybe the best way I can illustrate it is a story of when I was working as a doctor and a mother brought her five-year-old son to see me, and I'd known the kid since he was a baby. Um, and she said, Dr Rubenstein, I need you to look at my son. Something's going on. Um, he, he's... Um, started having temper tantrums and he's wetting his bed at night. And he stopped doing that nearly two years ago. You know, maybe he's got a urinary tract infection. So I said, okay, we'll have a look at, we had a look at him. Didn't have a temperature, his tummy was nice and soft, looked at his urine, that was all okay. Couldn't find anything. And I said to mum, okay, has anything else gone on? And this is like nearly 20 years ago. And she said, well, actually, um, just before all of this started, at school, they had a, a, a father and, and uh, son or father and child day where the dads or grandfathers or someone came along with the kids and they spent the morning at their preschool. And, and I'm a single mother and there's no father and no grandfather in the area, so um, my son went to school and he didn't have anyone with him. And I think, oh, no, you know, I get emotional when I think about this. Imagine you know, a five-year-old boy at school watching all the other boys with their dads or someone, and he's there on his own. And he can't come home and say, look, you know, I'm a bit emotionally distressed and I've got some issues, you know, doesn't happen. What's he do? He comes home and he starts having temper tantrums and wetting the bed. And for anyone who's a parent, you know, we know when our children are acting up, what else is going on? Are they overtired? Are they unwell? And you can see it so easily in young children. But it's no different in teenagers. You know, I've worked with teenagers who've done really bad things. They've been in jail, or, or remand we call it in Australia. They've been violent. They've stolen things. Um, they've abused. Bad stuff. And you think, oh, this is a bad teenager. And then I ask them, you know, so what's it like at home? They go, home? These are kids who've been abused. These are kids who've been kicked out. These are kids who's parents are alcoholic, these are kids who have been beaten. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, the behaviour. The behaviour is not okay, but maybe I understand more where it's coming from. And I believe it's not only with kids and teenagers, it's with adults. And for me, I'm very much of the belief that when the environment is not appropriate, when the environment not, is not working, that's when bad behaviours come out. They did some research in Australia some years ago where they asked a few thousand people between the ages of 12 and 70 how they felt about life, how they felt about their jobs, how they felt about the future, how safe they felt, what their friendship group was like, 
It's called subjective well-being. Actually, it's happiness. And, and this is the result that came out. So this is 12 years of age. This is 16 years of age, 55 years of age. And interestingly, it goes back up at about 70. So if you live to 70 in Australia, you'll be really happy like you were at 12 for some reason. And that really interests me, but the bit that really, really interests me and concerns me is this, the big drop that happens. And so this is in Australia, but you know, I've worked in a lot of different countries and consistently I hear it's very similar. And I think about, so why would a 12-year-old in Australia be so happy? Well, in Australia, most 12-year-olds most go to pretty good schools. They get three meals a day. They come home. There's some food there for them. They don't have much homework. They play. Someone cooks them dinner. After dinner, they take off their clothes and drop them on the floor and get in a bath that someone's made for them. They get out of the bath. Someone dries their tummy, turn around, dries their back, gives them a kiss. They go to bed, someone reads them a story, gives them another kiss, turns out the light. You know, they have a taxi service, they have a restaurant. It's great. Life as a 12-year-old in Australia is great. And yet, by 16, they're really struggling. And, and given that there are, in fact, kids who are also doing well, the ones who are struggling are really struggling. And that worries me. And... That's the part that I'm interested in addressing. And one of the big things we need to know is that the Gen Zs today, life is significantly different than what it was like when I was growing up or other, some other people here were growing up. And the biggest, biggest difference is technology, the influence of technology. The average age of smartphone ownership in Australia is about 12 and a half. And each year, that age goes down by two years. So a year ago, it was 14 and a half. Now it's 12 and a half. Within a year, it'll be 10 and a half. And pretty soon, every kid, seven, eight, nine years of age, will have a phone just in case. I mean, when I was a kid, I'm sounding my age now, we came home, we got on our bikes, and we were gone. And the rule was, you have to be home by dark or dinner and you have to bring your sister home. That was it. And if something happened, if we fell off our bike and, and hurt ourselves, we still had to get home. And if our bike had a flat tire, we still had to get home. And if we got lost, we had to ride around until we found our way home. And, and that's what you did. We didn't have the mobile phones everywhere. And in Australia, the research is showing that teenagers are spending anywhere between three and 11 hours per day looking at screens. Who grew up and didn't even have screens or just had television? Yeah. Um, and and in, also in Australia, in a lot of the schools, every child has to have an iPad or a laptop. Is that, whose children at school have to have a, 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 an iPad or a, a, a laptop? Is it very common or it's not so common here? There was a big fuss in Australia recently because one of the schools introduced um, this thing that they had to actually have an iPad from kindergarten. And, and, and this is about two years ago. Now it doesn't even make the papers because more, you know, most schools. And, and 
Yes, that's to do their homework and a creative way of learning, but then afterwards um, they still have the iPad. So it's a, huge, it's a huge issue in Australia. And there's also research coming out that the neural pathways, so the neural pathway are the learning pathways in your brain, and they get formed according to which bit gets used the most. So if I use that particular neural pathway a lot, it will form as a lifelong neural pathway. And there's already research coming out that the neural pathways are being affected by the use of technology. The impact of that is unknown because it's a relatively new thing, but they know that it's affecting it. And the other thing is I'm very interested in something called global megatrends. And that means when they, there's, there are, there's a lot of research around what's going to happen in 5, 10, 15 years' time. It's not a complete mystery. They, they, they already know. And, and they know that things like ambient computing is going to become a lot more influential, platforms which we already see having an influence in things like um, Uber and, and uh, Airbnb and car sharing, all of that sort of stuff, the smart machines, predictive analytics, uh, all the stuff where you, know, you might go on one of the online sales platforms and I might go and look for a slingshot or a new pair of boots or a pocket knife uh, and then I go on Facebook and, oh, look, there's an ad for a slingshot or a new pair of boots or a pocket knife. How did that happen? Yeah, it's absolutely happening. But that's going to happen more and more and more. Uh, the Internet of Things, you know, the influence is not going to become less. It's going to become way more. Um, you know, by 2025, algorithms will be making transactions on our behalf, metacoins, blockchains, all of these things are happening more and more. Artificial intelligence is becoming huge and just starting. So we have just the beginning of it. Things like Siri on our phones and Cortana, these are just the very, very beginning of the influence of artificial intelligence. And this graph here shows the investment um, in artificial intelligence uh, in America up till 2015. So this is already two years old. And the graph now would be way up here somewhere. So it's going to have more and more influence. Who, who owns a pair of virtual reality goggles, by the way? Anyone in the room? One early adopter here? There's a good chance that within 18 months... 95% of us will own virtual reality goggles. And, and you may shake your heads, but it's going to happen. So all the, online sale, all the online things that you buy, you'll use virtual reality goggles. So if I want to buy a shirt, I'll have made an avatar with my exact size and shape. I'll put on my goggles. That will go into a shop, and I can try the shirt on and see how it fits and all of that. Or if I want to get an Airbnb in Portugal, I'll put on my, air, my goggles, I'll find the Airbnb, I can go into the apartment, I can walk around the apartment, I can look at it, I can look out the windows, I can go downstairs, I can walk up the street, see what cafes and restaurants are there, see where the bus station is. You know, all of this stuff is going to happen more and more and more. Um, I'll just go back one slide. And one of the ways we know it's going to happen more is because of the fact that Amazon, Google, buy all these huge companies are investing enormous amounts of money in this. Um, things like driverless cars, 
there's a good chance that any child 10 years or younger will not actually learn how to drive because they'll be in driverless cars. This is an interesting photograph. I'm here with a man called Patrick Vincent, and this photo was taken in Sweden a year ago. And Patrick asked me to come over and give some talks, and I, and I ran a, uh, a father and son camp over there. And Patrick runs detox clinics. He runs digital detox clinics for teenagers who are addicted to video gaming and porn. So it's not an alcohol detox, it's not a drug detox, it's a digital detox clinic. And, and, and already, you know, this will be happening here in, in America, it's happening in Europe, starting to happen in Australia. I'm actually setting up a program on the property that I run for teenagers and men and women in their early 20s. And the first thing we'll do is separate them from their technology. So that's a huge thing. And I'm very interested, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about the issues and we need to know what's going on in their world, but what does it actually take for teenagers to thrive? You know, if we want our kids to be doing really well and thriving is a great way to describe it, if we want them to thrive, what are the things that they need? And the first thing they need is a sense of belonging. They need to feel like they're in a community, whether it's their family, extended family, but they need to have a sense of belonging. And because I work with a lot of teenagers who are really struggling, I get to see the other side of it. And these kids have no one. They don't feel a sense of belonging. They also need to feel safe. And safe is an interesting one. Because yes, we want all of our children to feel physically safe. And in Australia, most children do. We don't feel like we're going to have bombs drop on our heads. We don't have guns in Australia. Most children feel quite safe. But I am also interested in this idea of safe, where I want our children to feel safe to make mistakes and not get shamed for it. To actually know that making mistakes, mucking up, is, is how you learn. And as a child, you're supposed to learn, and it's a great way to do it. What I worry about is when children make a mistake and get shamed for it. So I worked with a man who was in his 60s, and he told me that when he was a young boy, he went water skiing with his father and some, some friends, and he said, and he fell off, and his father made fun of him and shamed him in front of everybody else. And he told me from that day until now, and he's in his 60s, he will never try anything new because he's so in front of other people, because he's so afraid of failing and feeling that way again. Does not feel safe. They also need to be seen. They need to be seen, children need to be seen for who they are. There's a beautiful film that came out of America called The Mask We Live In. Has anybody seen it? And, and it's... Um, High school students in America describing how every day before they go to school, they put on a mask to be who they think they should be so that they can have a sense of belonging, so they can feel safe, all of those things. But they're not being themselves. 
and, and at the same time, they're talking about their depression, their anxiety, their mental health issues, all of that. So for me, a huge thing is children being seen. And they're all different. Every one of our children is different. They need to be present. So they actually need to be where, we, you know, where they're at now rather than thinking and worrying about other things. And they also need to be resilient. And what I mean by resilient is they need to be able to fail, get up and keep going. And we have a big problem in Australia with something called helicopter parenting. Do you have that here in America? So they're so looked after and they're so protected and every kid has to win a prize. Even if you come last in the running race, you have to get a prize. When you have a party and you play pass the parcel and you unwrap it, every kid has to win something every time. And, and the kids have no resilience. And then when they become teenagers or later and they're actually out on their own, they really struggle when things don't go exactly as they planned and mum or dad's not there to pick them up. And so I also think about, you know, what would it be like to be a teenager today? And this first photo, and I really find this photo very interesting. Boy on a skateboard. But, you know, he's going to go. Like, he is going to go. That's the first thing. The second thing is he's not wearing any safety gear, no helmet, no pads. You'd have to be a bit worried about the outcome. And the other thing is, he's totally on his own. There's nobody else there. And I think that's the way it is for a lot of teenage boys today. They're going to go. They don't think about the consequences. They're not, there's no safety. You worry about the outcome, and they're on their own. And when I think about girls, this is a 15-year-old girl. You know, why, why would that photo worry us? She's beautiful. She's gorgeous. And yet, she's about to go out on a Friday night, on a Saturday night. Do we know where she's going? Do we know who's going to be there? Do we feel that it's going to be safe? And I think that's the way it is for a lot of girls in Australia as well. Beautiful, gorgeous, youthful, and yet they're going out into a world that's often not safe for them. I also believe that for teenagers to thrive, mentors are critical. For them to have someone other than their parents who they can talk to. Someone who can give them advice. Someone who can tell them when they're being stupid. But not their parents. And the final thing is, I strongly believe that teenagers, children, need to have the stages of their lives marked and acknowledged. And that I divide it up into there are sort of young kids, 12 and under, let's say. There's the transition years between 12 and 16, 17. And then there's young adulthood. And that each of these stages is significantly different and how we parent, how we teach them, how we, inter how we interact with them also has to be different. And that throughout history, these stages would have been marked. And we don't do that anymore.
And the best way to keep a teenager acting as a child is to treat them as a child. And we really need to look at this. I'm very interested in this idea of what I call child to adult behaviour. So a child, child behaviour is what you would typically see in a six to eight year old. And adult behaviour is hopefully how all of us act now, hopefully. So the first thing about child behaviour is a child thinks they're the centre of the universe. You know, it's all about me. Look at me, look at me, look at me when I'm in the park, look at me when I'm eating my dinner, look at me when I'm on the toilet. You know, just look at me, tell me how wonderful I am. And if I'm not getting acknowledgement by behaving well, I'll behave badly. But I need to be the centre of attention. That's a child, and that's fine for a child. Hopefully an adult actually recognises that we're part of the universe. So I'm part of something much bigger, much greater than me. I may well be connected to it, but I'm not the centre of it. And there's a big difference there. A child takes no responsibility for their action. It's always somebody else's fault. Anybody's children like that? You notice that? Something goes wrong, something happens, they break something, they don't do something. The teacher at school gave me the wrong homework. The teacher at school didn't mark my test properly. We lost the basketball game because the referee was no, you know, all of those sorts of things. No responsibility. Healthy adult behaviour, we're actually accountable. We're responsible. If something doesn't work out, we absolutely need to deal with it. And the next one is that a child wants a mother or a father, which is beautiful for a six to eight-year-old. And typically, a boy wants a mother who'll do everything for him, pick up his clothes, do his cooking, you know, kiss him when he falls over and scratches his knee. And often, if you think about the relationship between a six-year-old boy and his mother, it can be almost, almost abusive. And if he doesn't get what he wants, he can have a temper tantrum and, you know, punch and kick and swear, I hate you, you're the worst mummy in the world, and all that sort of stuff. And if a six-year-old does that, okay, that's okay. Maybe it's okay. And, and uh, a lot of girls want a hero father. In healthy adult behaviour, we actually want relationship. And, and, and it's, you know, we're, we're both in this together. And it's about creation and sharing and learning and growing. And for me, I believe a huge thing is to support this shift in our children from child behaviour to adult behaviour. And I wrote a model specifically for boys where we talk about boy behavioural psychology a boy thinks he's the centre of the universe, needs constant acknowledgement. Other males are competition. He wants as much power as he can. Thinks he's going to live forever. He's ruled by his emotions. If he doesn't get what he wants, he loses his temper and he wants a mother. Now, have any of the women in this room ever met a man who still thinks he's the centre of the universe, needs constant acknowledgement, wants power, thinks he's going to live forever, can't handle his emotions and he's looking for a mother? Anyone? So you, you can see we actually have a situation. And I have to say, I believe we live in a world that's ruled by boys. And that's a problem. It's a huge problem. 
ruled by boys instead of ruled by healthy men and women together. And that's what we're creating. So, for those of us with... And I'm actually really glad that we've got um, lots of parents here with young children because one of the things that I say is that you can't start parenting a teenager once they become a teenager. You actually have to start as early as possible. And we also need to know that how we parent teenagers, as I said before, is going to be different from how we parent children. So for fathers, and, and I'm a father, so when I talk about this, I'm also talking to myself. We need to realise that you know when our children are young, we have to set appropriate boundaries, we teach them, we tell them what to do, you know, we show them things. But once they become teenagers, a really, really critical thing is that we stop telling them how to live their lives. Our teenagers don't want to be told how they should be living their lives by us as fathers. They don't want those authority figures. What they do want, they want to hear our stories. They want to be able to ask us questions. And one of the things I say to fathers is if you want to have a good relationship with your children or anyone, with your partner or with anyone, one of the most important things to do is to spend one-on-one -on -one time with that person, turn off your mobile phone and just be with them. Anything. You can play sport. You can play music. In fact, for any of the fathers in here or any of the men in here, what's something that you do one-on-one -on -one with one of your children or with someone that you enjoy doing? Anybody? Kid of any age, yeah. Read books, fantastic. Skiing, brilliant. Throw a football, great. Anybody else? Wrestling. Kids love wrestling, especially with dads. Great. And so I do that stuff with my children, and one of the things I often find is we'll do the activity, you know, which is good, but it's then on their way home in the car or when we're sitting having a meal that they'll ask me a question or tell me something. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you actually spoke to me rather than looking it up on the internet or, or, or not having anyone to talk to you about it. So I you know, hugely encourage you, whether it's with your child, a friend, a partner, if we actually want to have a relationship, we need to do things one-on-one, -on -one, no mobile phones, no interruptions, just spending time together. And the other big thing I say to fathers is that when your kids muck up, which they are going to do at some stage, by the way, is there anybody here who as a teenager never once did something bad, wrong, naughty, stupid, anyone? Because once again, I've lectured all over the world and I haven't been able to find anyone so far. So I'd like to hear from a few people. What's something you did when you are a teenager which is like out there, crazy? Dangerous. Could have got you in a lot of trouble. Anybody? Streaking. Streaking. <laughs> there you go. Who else? Yeah. Breaking and entering. Breaking and entering. Yeah. Who else? Drunk driving. Drunk driving. Yeah. Throwing firecrackers on elderly people's roofs. Throwing firecrackers on elderly people's roofs. <laughs> <laughs> One more. Yeah. Doing what? What did you do? In the honey bucket? 
All right, you put an M8 in a fight, in a, well, there you go. Okay, so <laughs> we all have stories. But the big thing I say is that when your kids do muck up, the really important thing is to separate the person from the behaviour. So, you know, I love you, but putting an M80 in the honey bucket is like not okay. <laughs> Throwing firecrackers on someone's roof, drink driving. And, but if we shame them, and if we tell them they're no good and they're hopeless, they'll never amount to anything, then they actually won't feel safe to come to us when they really need to. And for me, I want that when my kids are really in trouble, they know they can come to me. I'll tell you a story. When my son was 17, um, there was a party. And it was a celebration for a kid who'd done really well in sport. And my son didn't know the boy, but it, was on, it came on the phones, on the text, there's a party going on. So my son went over there and managed to get in the party and, and all the rest. And then, um, so he's at this party, doesn't know the family, doesn't know the people, but he's at the party and he's, there was music, so he starts dancing, he's having fun, and, and, and then he, there's some girl and they start dancing together and they're having a good time and they're getting friendly. And at some point, she says to him, you know, let's go, let's go upstairs, let's have a look around, let's, you know, let's get out of here. So they go for a walk upstairs and they open a door and they find a bedroom and they go into the bedroom and they turn off the light and they sit on the bed and my son told me they were sitting there on the bed and just at that moment when they start to kiss, the door comes open, the lights go on, in walks the mother of the family and goes absolutely berserk, starts screaming and shouting. There's a couple of kids in her bedroom kissing and my son gets kicked out of the party. The next day, he starts getting texts on his phone we know who you are and we're going to get you. So all of a sudden it's serious. And he came and he told me this. And I said, okay, well, it's not okay that you went to, you gate crashed a party with people you don't know. And it's really not okay that you went in this house into someone else's bedroom with a girl you don't know and started making out on their bed that's really not okay, but we need to sort this out and we need to do it together. So we talked about it and we decided that the best thing to do would be to go over there and see the family and talk to them about it. So we managed to find out whose party it was and um, got a phone number and I rang up and the mother answers the phone and I go, hello, this is Dr. Rubenstein speaking. <laughs> and I'm like really nervous, fully nervous. And I said, I understand my son was at your party and he got kicked out and, you know, we'd like to come over and see you. So mother agreed. So I went over there with my son and we sat there and we talked and the mother said, you know, it was the worst night of my life. We're trying to have this fabulous party for my son. Hundreds of kids turned up. There were children vomiting on the front lawn. The police were there. It was terrible. I got a migraine. So I went up to my room to escape, opened the door, and there you are with some girl sitting on my bed making out. And she was distraught about the whole thing. And it was really good for my son to hear that, really good. And then he went and he spoke to the boy whose party it was and he apologised and they agreed that, you know, that would be it. And it was actually very good. And I haven't been the perfect father, 
but that was one thing I did well. And I want my kids to be able to come to me. And if they don't feel safe, they won't. So this is hugely important. The other thing is I speak to a lot of mothers. And, and I'm a little bit, I'm always a bit worried about this, but I've got to say it. So for mothers, once your kids become teenagers, <laughs> you need to give them some space. There's a word, and I know this is purely coincidence, <laughs> but somehow the word smother has mother in it. I had, I had, a, um, I had a, a mother bring her boy to me one time. He's about 16 years old. She brings him into the surgery, and uh, he's sitting there in the room, and he's got his hood over his head, and he's looking down, and I can see he's angry, and mother's going, you've got to speak to my boy. I don't know how to deal with him anymore. And then she looks at her boy, and she goes, oh, hang on, you've got something on your face. And she licks her fingers and goes to clean it, and you can just see the kid. He's just like beside himself. And eventually, you know, we have a talk and we get the mother out of the room and the kid takes his hood off. And I've known him since he was young. He goes, oh, Dr. Imstein, she's driving me mad. I don't know what to do. Like, she irons my underpants. And it's a nightmare. And what I say to mothers is, you know, there's going to be a time you need to give them space. You don't want to know. You're not going to know everything that's going on with them. And you don't want to know everything that's going on with them, especially if you've got a son but also with daughters. And you need to give them that space, but also be available for when they want to come to you, which they will. And if we try and hold on to them, if we try and keep telling them how to live their lives, they will exit. It's a big one. I also say to mothers, spend time with your children one-on-one. -on -one. Find something that you enjoy doing and do it. So I ask the mums, what's something you enjoy doing with one of your children? Anybody? Yeah, firecracker throwing on old people's lives. <laughs> Sorry? Hiking. Fantastic. Dancing in the living room. Dancing in the living room. Brilliant. Who else? Yeah. Sorry? Self-defence classes. Self classes. Well, great, great. Who else? One more? Great, listening to psychology books. A million different things we can do. And, and the final thing I say to mothers in Australia, actually there's a few things, but I also say, because in Australia, not all, but very often the mothers are the primary caregivers and very often in Australia the mothers give up a lot to bring up the children. And I say to mothers, you know, definitely by the time they become teenagers, you have to live your life. You have to do the things that you're passionate about whether it's work, hobbies, whatever it is, you, our children need to see mothers, women, absolutely have lives. Um, and that's really important. So I come back to this graph. As a doctor, you wouldn't work on this graph at this point. It's too late. You'd actually be working back here somewhere because we actually want to avoid this happening. But in Australia, that's exactly where they work on it. And somewhere between 25 and 45% of kids in Australia at 16 are either labelled with a mental health issue or are on medication. I mean, it's like 
unbelievable. And in the medical field that I worked in, I couldn't find anything that actually worked back when they were 10, 11, 12 years of age. And so what I did was I started looking outside the box. And I actually started studying indigenous communities around the world. And the thing that I found that really amazed me was that in every indigenous community all over the world, at that age, they would have some sort of coming of age rite of passage ceremony. They all did it. And it wasn't like they had a conference and all got together and said, we have to do something. But they had thousands of generations of human behaviour to observe. And whether it was Papua New Guinea or North America, South America, Australia, Africa, they all did it, and they all did it in a similar way. Different elements, but a similar way. So if a boy was born as a Maasai warrior at about... 13, 14, he would have had to go out with a spear and kill a wild animal. And then he would have been taken by one of the elders to all the surrounding tribes for anywhere up to a year and heard their stories by an elder, by a mentor. In Vanuatu, they built towers out of bamboo and the young men would climb up, they would tie a vine around their ankle and they had to jump down towards the ground. And all the community would be out there singing and dancing and watching. In East Africa, these girls were tattooed with a bamboo stick. And from that time, they were known as young women. They had the privileges of young women, they had the responsibilities of young women, and they never went back to being girls again. Some of you may know of the Mescalero Apache Indian girls. They have a ceremony that's, that's come back where when the girls reach puberty or around the time that they, after they start bleeding, as a group, the girls go through a ceremony where for four days and nights, the whole community comes together, the stories of the community are shared, um, the girls sing and dance, um, they they go through a process around the the different stages of life and every single girl is given a mentor chosen by her family to guide her through her young adult years. Imagine, imagine, you know, everyone, but for the women, if you had someone through your teenage years actually there for you, watching over you, knowing you, teaching you, answering your questions... Imagine that. The Satare Mawe Indian boys in Brazil used to have to put their hands into these gloves made out of bark and leaves, and the, the leaves were woven and inserted into the leaves were these giant bull ants with an incredibly painful bite that lasted for 24 hours. They had to put their hands in and dance around in front of the whole community. So they all did it. And the question is, you know, why? Why did every Indigenous community, here in North America, the the vision quests, where the boys would go out into the desert for days at a time without food or water? Why? So I I can only explain it in, in my 
version of it and from my studies of it, but I believe there are a number of things. And the first was to create this shift from child to adult behaviour. They recognised that if you had a community that was run by children, it would destroy itself. It would use up all the natural resources, it would fight, it would kill everybody else, and it would destroy itself. So they recognised that this shift from child... There was a time to be a child, and then there's a time to be an adult. But they also believed that every single one of our children, every single person, is different. Every one of your children has their own individual gifts and talents, their own genius and their own spirit. Who's got more than one child? Okay, so I have two boys. From the moment they were born, they had an absolute personality and they were totally different. From the moment they were born. And the belief is that through the Indigenous communities, they're all different. So some of our children are brilliant at things that, that require intellectual stuff. Some kids are brilliant at making things and building things. Some kids are brilliant at surf. Some, their passion is music. They're all different. And so this is the, this is the idea. We have all these different kids. So I'd like to ask a question. Tell me one thing that stands out about your child, one gift, one talent, one sign of their spirit that you see? Anybody? One thing about your child? Sense of humour. Great. Compassion. Great. Who else? Sharing. Speech. Speaks well. Great. Who else? Joy for performing. Who else? Athletic, intuitive. They're all different. So every kid is different and has their own gifts and talents. And then in the world, there are all these roles that need to be filled. We need builders, we need doctors, we need nurses, we need engineers, we need architects, we need people who, you know, break down buildings, we need people who are adventurers, explorers, scientists, biologists. Um, fashion designers, we actually need all of these roles filled to create diversity in a healthy community. And then there are all these kids with different gifts and talents. The key is to line up the gift and the talent, the genius and the spirit, with the role that needs to be filled. And so the compassionate person, you probably want them to be a doctor or a nurse or a physio rather than a financial services person. I would say. And the person who's brilliant at maths, it would be great if they could be, you know, something to do with maths or engineering. They might not want to deal with people a lot. And the person who's got a great sense of humour, well, you put them in a job that needs a great sense of humour. And the one who's a great athlete, we need athletes. And the one who's a great musician, hopefully they get encouraged to pursue their music rather than being told, no, you actually have to be an accountant because that's how you'll make more money. Because when people do what they love, when they're passionate about something, what happens? They shine. They excel. They want to learn. They're kind. They teach other people. They're happy. They're joyful. And we know 
that when people are happy, joyful, passionate, they also make healthy decisions. If I come back to that question about what's going to keep our children away from, you know, make the decision around drugs or not, if I'm happy, passionate, know where I'm going, know what I want to do, drugs are not attractive to me. But if life sucks, if there's nothing I'm interested in, if I don't feel like I've got any friends, if it's boring, drugs become great. I feel good. I've got a social network. And then all of a sudden I'm dependent on the drugs. And the kids who I speak to who are doing this, that's, they, they, they feel like there's no future, they don't know what they want to do, no one sees them, drugs make them feel okay. And the modern day drug is technology. I can go into my room, I can be a superhero on the shooter games for 12 hours straight. I can get on social media and even if I have no friends in the real world, I can have thousands of friends right there. It's like it's messed up. And there's huge media and market research trying to make us a certain way, especially kids, trying to get them to all wear the same clothes, drink the same drink, eat the same food, listen to the same music. Instead of celebrating the fact that they're all different, we try to make them the same so that someone can actually make money out of that. It's like we're selling their souls of our children so that we can make money and then we're medicating them. It's like... So, I believe the reason why, one of the reasons why the Indigenous communities created a rite of passage was actually to recognise those gifts. And also to build strength and resilience. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. So this idea of a rite of passage. So, so a rite of passage is something that changes someone, that transforms someone. And I've studied rites of passage all over the world. And what I found is that wherever it was being done, there was a similarity in that the person or people going through the rite of passage would be separated for a period of time from the rest of the community they would be taken by the elders and then certain things would happen. And what I've been interested in is can we create rites of passage today? Can we create rites of passage in Seattle, in Vashon? Can we bring them back into our communities? Can we do them in Australia? And I absolutely believe that we can. And my way of doing it is by going, okay, what are the elements and how can we still do that? So, the first thing that happened in a rite of passage was the sharing of stories, the sitting in council, the sitting in circles. For thousands of years, communities have sat in circles, around fires, in the desert, in teepees, on mountains, and shared stories. And one of the greatest desires of the parents and elders is to pass on our wisdom and knowledge to the young. But the way to do it is not by telling them how to live their lives, but by sharing our stories and by sharing the stories of our people. And that's how they learn. So when I run a camp, we take away, we take away um, boys and men. And every day we sit in a circle. Um, we have a fire in the middle if we can. Man, boy, man, boy, man, boy. And on the first day we'll say to the men, okay, so tell us a story about when you were the age that your son is now 
And what was your relationship like with your father? And in Australia, about half the men cry because they had such a bad relationship with their father. Men who've never spoken about it in their whole lives. And the men share their stories. And the boys will sit there and not move for two, three hours hearing these stories. And at the end, when we say to the boys, if you become a father, what would you like your son to say about you one day? And the answers that those boys give are beautiful and profound. They listen. They've learnt. If we'd spent two hours telling them how to be fathers, it would be a disaster. When the girls and the women go away, the women talk about when they were that age. The women talk about their relationships with their fathers, with their mothers. We talk about successes and failures. We talk about grief, loss. We talk about sex and relationships. We have to. Because if we don't talk about this stuff, they're going to learn it on their phones or on their computers watching porn. And is that how we want our kids to learn about sex, relationships and making love? Watching porn? Absolutely not. They need to be sitting in safe, respectful spaces with elders hearing stories. Oh, this is this boy back in the hospital. So he's lying on the bed. He's got his broken leg. The nurse comes up to me and says, Dr. Rubenstein, the boy's dad is here. He's in the waiting room and he's going to kill his son. Like he's furious. So I go out into the waiting room and there's his dad and he's a big guy and he is. He's furious. He wants to kill his son. I say, I'm Dr. Rubenstein. I'm looking after your son. And he goes, where is he? I'm, you know, my car. He smashed my car. You know, I'm going to kill him. And I say to the dad, okay, before you kill him, I've got a question I want to ask you. What were you like when you were his age? And the dad goes, oh, gosh, I was terrible. I was way worse than him. You know, I crashed cars, I shot things, I got in fights. You know, I was, you know, I was off the rails. And I said, all right, I'll tell you what, let's make a deal. Before you kill your son, you go in and you tell him about what you were like when you were his age. And when you've told him, if you still want to kill him, you can do it. So this is the dad talking to his son. I would say they had the most beautiful conversation they'd ever had in their life. Dad was crying. Boy was crying. It was very special. Okay, so stories. The next is a challenge. Our children need a challenge. And if we don't create challenges, they will create it for themselves. We heard that at the beginning. This boy, today he's going to skateboard down this hill. He might take up base jumping, one of the fastest growing sports in the world. They say the average life expectancy once you start base jumping is six years. This is a 16-year-old boy on a motorbike and, and, and the X Games and all that stuff. And what I see with boys, it's very interesting, they go out there on their own and they do the stupidest thing they can. And if it doesn't work, they do something more stupid. And they keep winding it up and winding it up until something happens. And I have to say, I actually believe all of our children are going to go through a rite of passage. They're all going to go through it. The question is, 
Are we going to let them create their own or are we actually going to facilitate it in a respectful, purposeful way that actually benefits them rather than becoming a major wounding? And what I, so boys go out there and do the stupidest thing they can. In my experience as a doctor, girls more often tend to go inside and get into the most stupid situation they can. They'll get in the car they shouldn't get into. They'll go off with the guy they shouldn't go off with. They'll be at the party where they don't know anyone. And, and having worked in emergency, often the consequences that I see are terrible. And I don't want that happening. And I believe that, as I say, we need to be creating these challenges. And boys need to push their edges. They need to feel unsafe. They need to feel their mortality. And we need to find ways to do that that are appropriate. It's interesting, when the Maasai warrior boys would go out and they'd send 20 boys out to kill a lion, they might only get 15 back. When we do these programs, if we send 20 out, we need to bring 20 back. That's part of, you know, we actually can't lose them. But we are losing them, if we don't, in cars, drugs, fights, all of these sorts of things. So we need to find appropriate challenges, and that's why something like a vision quest is fantastic, a solo, a huge hike, these sorts of things, where we can push these boys in an appropriate way. And the other, so then with the girls, what's interesting, what I've been able to work out from the challenges that they had in their rites of passage is that very often the challenge for a boy was on his own to face fear or death. For girls, it was most commonly as a group and they had to learn to trust the other girls and the women and to learn to listen to their inner knowing and their intuition. Think about that. You know, imagine if women, if girls, actually trusted their inner knowing and their intuition. You know, how many of you women have done something, you knew you shouldn't have done it, but you didn't trust yourself and you did it anyway, and how did that work out for you? And, and the other thing that interests me is that, you know, back in the day, a boy became a man and a girl became a woman. And they were very different and it was very clear in, a, in, a, in most of the Indigenous communities. Today, a boy becomes a man, a girl becomes a woman, and there's a lot of crossover, more and more crossover. And I believe that boys also need to learn to trust their community and their inner knowing and their wisdom. And girls need to access their inner warrior, their strength, get in touch with their real power. And so the challenge that we need to do need to address that. The other thing that I think that is critical for a successful rite of passage today is to have a vision for the boys or girls to create a vision for their future, to think about how they want to be in 10, 15, 20 years' time. 
and especially if we can have them in nature, which is the most beautiful backdrop for this work, thinking about their vision for the future and how they want to be. And we know, the research tells us, that when someone has a vision about something, when they think about what they want to do, it's actually more likely to happen. And the final part of it is this idea of honouring or recognising the gifts and talents, the genius and the spirit of each of them. So when we run a program, if I'm running a program for fathers and sons, at the end of the program, I'll get, all the, I'll get each of the boys will come up one at a time, sit on a special chair in front of everyone, and then his father will get up in front of everyone and tell his son what he loves about him, what he's proud of, what gifts he sees that he has. And it changes his life. It absolutely changes his life. And then another man will get up, and then one of the other leaders will get up and tell this young man what they see in him. And same with the girls. The mothers, the women will get up and tell each of the girls, each of the young women, what they see in them, the beauty, the gifts, the talents, and the genius. It changes their lives. I want every kid in the world to have that opportunity to be honoured and recognised by their elders and told exactly who you are is perfect, beautiful, wonderful. We see you, we recognise you, we love you. I think we would have a very different world if we did that. I think it would have a huge impact on this graph. I, I want to see people getting happier as they get older. I want to see them getting more inspired about life, having better relationships. Um, I know you won't be able to see this very clearly, but a lot of my work has been around recognising what are the elements of a rite of passage, how can we bring it into different communities. So the trainings that I do, and as I said, I'm going to do a one-day training at Vash on this Friday, which we still have, I think we have a couple of spaces for, um, is around teaching people the elements of a rite of passage so that they can take it and do their own rite of passage in their own way in their own community. There's not just one way to do it. How they'll do it here, how your community will do it, how you'll do it, how you'll do it will be different. But the elements of sharing stories, creating challenges, having a vision for the future and honouring the individuals will hopefully be the same. But there's a million different ways you can do it. So my interest, and in Australia, we've started up different camps that are running all over Australia. Um, we work now with a lot of schools, trying to get them to convert their school camps, which are just actually activities, into a rite of passage. It's a fantastic opportunity for people to be able to do it at home with their families and their children, all sorts of different things that we can do. And I want to see, when this boy is going to go, I want to see a couple of people standing there next to him saying, hey, son, have you thought about this? You, are you aware that it's kind of a bit dodgy down the bottom? You know, would you like some safety gear? Would you like us to, you know, go down and remove those poles down there? And, and I want to see the streets lined with people cheering, holding up flags, because he is going to go. I don't want to see him kill himself or break his neck at the bottom. And when this beautiful, gorgeous girl is going out, I want there to be a couple of people there also going, you look beautiful and I want you to know you can call me anytime if you want me to come and pick you up 
and it would probably be good if we knew where you were going. Happy to give you a lift there. Make sure you got enough money for a, a taxi or an Uber or whatever it is that you need to get home. And, you know, let's just talk so that she feels supported, safe and in the presence of community. We can do that. So, as I said, we run these camps around the place and uh, this camp, we had about 80 men and boys from all over Australia. This camp was um, run not all that long ago. And, and, and one of the huge things about this work, it's actually about creating community. And we've had a huge breakdown in community, so it's actually about rebuilding community. And that's not easy, and that takes time. This, this is Karim standing next to me, and he's 31 years old. And he was the program manager in charge of that camp with 80 men and boys. And Karim came on a rite of passage when he was 13 years old and I was his facilitator. And he's now there as a program manager running the camp. We can do it. It does take time. But it is a most beautiful thing to do and to watch grow. And, and I'm so excited that, you know, it's starting here, starting here in Vashon. And there are other groups that are doing it. And there are other people around the country who are doing it for boys and for girls. The School of Lost Border does fantastic stuff. I was in Eugene last night where they're doing wilderness retreats for boys and starting wilderness retreats for girls next year. There are all sorts of groups starting up. And, and I love, because I remember when we were starting out, and I remember how we struggled to get people along to camps. And I want to see your camps booked out years ahead. I don't want these guys to be spending all their effort trying to get people to come to camps. I actually want them to be spending their effort making those camps as fantastic as they can. And that's why I'm happy to come over here and give these talks. I wrote a book about this stuff called The Making of Men. And, and even though it talks about um, raising boys to be happy, healthy and successful, 98% of what we talk about in there is just as relevant for girls. I've actually um, got some copies that we brought over here. We're selling them for $15 or $25 for two if anybody wants to buy them. I'll be sitting down here at the end. Um, these are my two sons now, Jarrah and Jaden. They're six foot four and six foot one. And, and we went in a car recently and we all had to sit in the back because we were with someone else and they wanted me to sit in the middle because I'm the smallest. And we still wrestle but now it's to submission. <laughs> and we have a policy that once a year, we go away together on an adventure. And sometimes I go one on one, and sometimes the three of us go. We've been doing it since they were teenagers. And they'll still ring me up, 25 and 27, and go, Daddy, and they don't often call me Daddy, believe me, we haven't had our adventure yet this year. What are we going to do? And that's our special time together. So. I want to say a huge thank you to everyone, a huge thank you for coming out here. I want to say a huge thank you to Nikki and Alex from Journeyman for getting this whole thing started, for getting me over here. Um, I know there's been lots of people who volunteered and, and come out and helped tonight to make this happen. 
Um, I'm really excited. I'm really looking forward to our training. I'm really looking forward to our father-son weekend. I know we still have spaces for that if anybody has boys between 13 and 16. 13 and 19. We're going to do something really special this weekend. I know it's going to be absolutely amazing. Um, and I just hope that this is the beginning of something enormous. So we've got a raffle that we're going to have now, but I just want to say thank you very much to everybody. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Dr. Arna Rubenstein spoke at Seattle University's Piggott Hall on April 19th. The event was hosted by the Vashon Island-based organization, Journeyman. Tune in again soon.